0: You're listening to the best of the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome! It's little Friday. It's Thursday, uh, but I call it little Friday because, well, let's just face it. I mean, I think people are treating Thursdays nowadays as a, uh, as yeah, the the interlude, the pre, the prelude to the weekend. Our producer, Fong, is in studio with us. What's going on, Fong?
2: Hey, um, nothing much, just a little tired.
1: You're tired today. Yeah. Right. Thursdays do that, though.
2: Right? Really? Yeah. yeah I didn't know
1: that. We're almost there. We're almost there.
2: Yeah. Friday. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Fridays. We, uh, we do Friends on Fridays here, which would mean that we will be broadcasting John Zipper's. Uh, week-to-week political roundtable talk. So he does a really good job in kind of the various topics that, of course, pertain to progressive voices listeners here. Um, but on our program today, I mean, we've got uh, a great Thursday show for you. We'll have discussions regarding gender identities and gender studies um, and also uh, just uh, different emotions and feelings that we may feel in within the LGBTQ community. I've been, I've been kind of... Thinking about this a lot, that I find that I don't always feel like I belong, even even in the LGBTQI community. What do you think of that, Fong?
2: Um, what do you mean by you don't feel like you belong?
1: I I just feel outside. I feel different. I feel like I I may not always I may not always uh, see eye to eye with everyone in our community, and 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 also I may not I may not like. <laughs> everyone in our community and and i think that that's you know that's true as far as like human beings go though we're not we're not so you know we we yes i think that love is supposed to be you know the number one powerful thing that can unite us um but the reality is that we're we're all humans
2: yeah um it's it's really difficult to to be liked by everyone and also be surrounded by everyone you want to be surrounded by sometimes. Hey. And it, yeah, um, even though sometimes you're involved in one community, it doesn't mean that everyone will hold the same values because all of us, were very different. Different it's folks.
1: Exactly where I was going with that. We have different uh, v- a value system, but we're also really complex. I mean, think about LGBTQI touches on gender, touches on uh, sexual orientation and the differences there. Right. But then as, as people, we also have ethnic differences or, mm-hmm. you know, diversity in um, just uh, race or or yeah, ethnic background, financial background, even our education and our upbringing, our religion, and you put all that together, (laughs) it's kind of hard to stay contained in that (laughs) one
2: box. Yeah. The academic term that we use for that is intersectionality.
1: Intersectionality. Right.
2: So basically different types of identities kind of crossing and it's basically seen as like a layer of well, different layers of that person.
1: And which I think that this is a great segue to our... Uh, guest today. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter dot com. Our guest today on the phone is Karen Tongson, who is the associate professor of English and Gender Studies at USC or the University of Southern California, and also the author of Relocations: Suburban Queer Suburban Imaginaries. Um, which you know, this also will. A great conversation to have regarding San Francisco. So, Karen, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the program. It's My pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, it's like you know, where do I want to start with you? There's so many things that we can we can talk about, uh, but maybe let's start with you know just kind of what Fong and I were talking about earlier in in how diverse and complex the LGBTQI community actually is, and uh, how we all have you know so many differences, but yet uh, to at least pop culture, the media, and and even, you know, D.C., uh, we're seen as one oppressed group.
3: Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, but that, that sort of belongs to, you know, that's, that's sort of the consequence of every oppressed group in the U.S. is that because I think we're so attached to the way representation works through the media, through, quote-unquote, visibility, or, uh, you know, through other forms of social media, uh, we want a very simple story to cling to. We want to be able to get to the quick narrative right away. That's why quick takes have become so popular in the social media age. We just sort of, hey, Miley Cyrus did this on the VMAs. What do you have to say about it? Like, is it racist? Is it not? And in that sort of environment, um, and that accelerated environment in particular, I think we lose a lot of nuance and some of the and many of the nuances of of different, Groups, whether or not it's the LGBTQI, OP as your opening says, community, <laughs> or um, or Asian American communities, um, other communities of color, etc.
1: Right, right. I know that you know you do a lot of studies regarding media, pop culture, and um, you know it, it's interesting even you know having started this show uh, 10 years ago on on something as traditional as radio where you know it's it, talking about queer issues, uh, 10 years ago is like what are you doing <laughs> you know and now it's uh, being talked about everywhere but the interesting thing that i see in the last at least 10 years and having conversations especially out there in pop culture is um you know that the the exposure of our complex identities that it goes even deeper than just being gay or being lesbian i mean now we have um you know i feel like it we, we we're touching on People are androgynous or uh, non-binary, but maybe that's just me being sensitive to that. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, it's what, you know, Fong was mentioning, we in academia, call something like intersectional analysis, intersectional identities. I think that what we, most of us, not only in the scholarly world, but in a broader kind of world of cultural observers and critics, are always going to have to search for the language of things that are happening right before our eyes right we It's very difficult for us to pinpoint the languages to use to describe the richness of these various experiences, um, the departure from the models that we all know so well, right like binaries um, and like whatever categories we establish in order to understand them and so I think that um, at the same time that we don't necessarily have the language to describe certain, you know, new or emergent identities. I can tell you that in fact a lot of people in the younger generation, and sounds like Lily really old, all these young folks do and have been developing a very intricate vocabulary for these new intersectional sites of identity that factor everything in from not only sexual desire, but you know, the difference between sexual desire and romantic desire, right? So for example, um somebody told me you could be a romantic with a capital R, or you could be like a non-romantic. You know, you don't want that versus only sexual. Right? So the, mm-hmm. it's a kind of specialization of all of these zones of identity. And the, the, the just recently, the most valuable lesson I learned was from a young woman who's uh, actually 15. Who's I was at a party her parents were at, and she happened to be there. And we got to talking, and she just had such a rich vocabulary and such a wide array and method of understanding your own self moving through the world I was so impressed I asked her to come and talk to my class about it and I asked her where did you learn all this stuff you know have you been reading all of these amazing new like gender studies books I don't know about and she's like I got it all from YouTube Yeah. so you know so I mean I do think that there's a lot of, kind of um, self learning self making the creation of new terms and I think that those of us who have access to a pulpit or a lectern or a mic on the radio have to be really kind of aware and willing to receive these new languages when they present themselves to us.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's, that's so great that you said that. I, I, you know, I was in a meeting the other day with older um, queer and lesbian women who you know, tripping up on on some of the uh, vocabulary and just said, you know, let's just let's just go back to when it was easier. And I thought that was just an interesting thing or, um, you know, as far as like insight for me goes, because it was like, well, I think it's easier today, even with all the difficult vocabulary, because now we can actually we can actually uh, identify, um, you know, in, in, in the way that we want.
3: Uh, What allows people to feel more comfortable? Like, I I mean, you know, I'm all for shorthand because, you know, as someone who writes a lot of memos and emails and what have you, I'm like, it's just easier (laughs) sometimes to move bureaucratically that way. Um, But it's great that um, younger folks who don't exclusively move through the world as a bureaucratic person or as, you know, someone moving through that kind of governmental system has an opportunity to you know, be creative with their forms of self-expression. Um, but it just shows you, too, though, how um, how the state, how forms, how all the things that we have to deal with from a very bureaucratic perspective are there to really just keep us narrowly defined by certain categories.
1: Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Professor Karen Tongson of USC. Um, you know, Karen, you have a book out, Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what is... What is the book about?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, at its simplest, the book is really about how um, we often associate queer sexualities, experimental forms of queerness, visibility, safety, um, with cities. and Or we kind of think about the dyad or the kind of contrast between the city and the country and the relationship between, you know, rural queer lives, which is supposedly you know, dangerous, right, or under peril, in peril, Um, and whatever fabulousness we may find in the city that our trajectory is there. And I kind of wanted to think about what queer life was like in the interstitial places, but in particular in a place organized around sprawl, like Southern California, where our sense of the city is different. Our sense of urban mapping isn't as vertical as it is in New York. Um, you know, or in San Francisco even, um, or as densely laid out. And so what forms of sociability can happen in spaces of sprawl? How do we improvise with the chain spaces that suburbia provides for us? And what forms of creativity and intimacy can be found in some unusual places, particularly in the SoCal region Which is not a whitewashed suburbia at all, um, but is a tremendously diverse set of suburbias and points of first contact for many immigrant communities.
1: Right, wow. That is, uh, I mean, the best way that someone has described it to me, just because my partner, you know, is from the Southern California area and Orange County, and Ed always. I'd always had to counter people's thoughts and perceptions regarding how, as you said, it whitewashed that it was. And sure, there's certain pockets of affluence or, you know, wealth, um, that can contribute to, or attribute to, you know, I could say Caucasian people, but there's a huge immigrant community, especially Asian community. Um, and so I, you know, I want to get into that in terms of, you know, sexuality and queer sexuality and being open, um, in the Asian community in general, you know, sexuality is sometimes, or most times, uh, I, I, my feelings are oppressed, you know, in, in public at least. Like we just don't show affection in that way. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, I think that there are different ways in which same-sex modes of affection are very open, actually, in a lot of different Asian communities in Asia, right? Sort of female friendship and uh, even, you know, sort of um, male friendship or whatever are much more expressive and not kind of filtered through the lens of same-gendered relations here in the U.S. Uh, And so, like, you have, from where I'm from, the Philippines, for example, there is already a kind of rich vocabulary for understanding the role certain queer people play in those communities, right? Um, Although some of those roles are pretty strict. But, you know, one of the things about the suburban, like, setting for understanding race and sexuality is that you have, you know, coming together at once the sort of... um, suburban desire to conform and for things to be the same and for there to be a narrative of success, right? And of, of lives being perfect, the perfectly edged long, the picket fence, et cetera. Right. Um, coming to in, you know, like really kind of merging with a sort of model minority desires in various Asian American communities, the desire to fit in, the desire to become a part of the American fabric. And so when you have those two, um, those two really powerful desires meshing and melding together, uh, it can create an atmosphere of, you know, sort of self-policing, not only kind of policing one's behaviors that kind of, that you would be comfortable with, back in Asia in various ways, kind of same-sex displays of affection and girl culture and cuteness and what have you, right? Um, But, you know, it can create these double or exponentially increased forms of repression, as you Mm -hmm. were saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but my whole thesis is that actually (laughs) that's not the case. I mean, that's what we would assume might happen, but actually um, being placed in these kind of securitized environments allows people to sort of find hacks, for lack of a better word, or alternative methods of um, expressing their queerness, coming together and remaking what suburbia has given them into something cool for themselves.
1: Karen, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we'll continue our very, very in depth and interesting conversation. So you'll stick around. Sure, sure. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
1: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. On the phone with us is our guest, Karen Tongson, who's the Associate Professor of English and Gender Studies at USC, University of Southern California. And we were just talking about Karen's uh, book that was released in 2011, Relocations, uh, Suburban Imaginaries. I'm sorry relocations queer suburban imaginaries <laughs> <The> queer <fun>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> right um and so i you know it, this is just so interesting to me because it's like i feel it, you know here's 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 kind of like my day right it's like i spend a lot of my time in queer san francisco which is liberating um, and, and empowering at times but then I go home and I find myself just living a, a, a much more heteronormative life and so I do the daily things of um, sometimes even finding myself putting myself in a box of you know take the trash out and that's my job and, and uh, you know and, and, and then my partner does the cooking and, and, and it almost feels odd like no I need to clear it up <laughs> Does that sound, I'm just playing mind games with myself, huh, Karen? Well, but, you know, that could happen
3: if you were living in a loft in Soma or in a suburban home, like, in Daly City or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you could be in that kind of domestic scene or domestic space no matter where you are, even in the heart of Manhattan, right? You Mm -hmm. know, Um, but, uh, you know, the thing that I'm actually interested in, as I was saying, is that the ways that, you know, people have really transformed suburban space. For example, in particular, youth transformed suburban space in the 80s, 90s, et cetera, and turned them into these awesome kind of queer experimental places in in venues you wouldn't expect it. Mm. For example, you know, um, there used to be these nightclubs at Disneyland and Not Very Farm that were 18 and under, right? And the whole point was to keep kids from commuting into L.A. to go to the really seedy dance clubs and maybe under parental supervision, and what have you, in the supervision of the parks. But, you know, the the youth who are going to Studio K and Cloud Nine at South Berry Farm or its knockoff Videopolis at Disneyland were doing all sorts of experimental, cool, crazy, queer things and, you know, stylistically through music, uh, with their dancing, you know, with, like, meeting other people. Uh, and so they transformed that space into a place of proto-queer possibility. Um but also the parties that people use, you know, what if you don't have anywhere to go, if you can't party at your parents' house, um, you know, if you don't have any, like, cool coffee shops to go, especially in the 80s, 90s, you know, no Starbucks even, yeah. right? Um, where are you going to get a party together? Well, uh, a bunch of kids would get together and book a ballroom at, like, the Holiday Inn or something like that, right? And create a dance party or dance club there or a small show. So this so, is... Allowances and resources together. So, you know, yeah. I'm just interested in how people take the mundane and turn it into something really amazing and fabulous, which is pretty queer, right?
1: That is pretty queer, and I, I think that that's happening more now um, than I would say than than ever, only because I feel like Historically speaking, I mean, we established gay bars and lesbian bars specifically to meet other lesbians and, and other gay or other queer people. But to, today, and kind of to your point, is that, you know, we're transforming other places outside of even just the bar to get together um, and, and queerify it <laughs> That's a good word yeah. to put it because here in San Francisco we don't actually have a lesbian bar anymore. It's it's non-existent. It's gone. Um, They're all gone you know. away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what what I do find is that you know there may not be a, a you know a lesbian bar, but there are lots of queer places like the yeah. Dolores Park, for example, which is a public park, and you know there's the the area where the queers hang out, the gay beach. <laughs> is what they call it. I wonder if people do that down in Orange County. I mean, you guys have all of those really beautiful beaches, um, and that that usually are occupied by well, uh, rich people.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, there's still this the gay beach that I've been going to since I was like in high school, or actually in college, I guess. Um, in Laguna is still there, and it's still this weird like. If you pass the Taco Bell and go this way, you'll find this weird staircase that looks like a private staircase, but it's not, you know, it's kind of, um, that's also where part of the pleasure and play of, of finding these spaces in suburbia comes from, right, is is the kind of the adventure of it and the, the you know, um, the willingness to seek something out that doesn't make itself so easily available to you, like in a city where, hey, I've just you know, I trip and fall, and next thing you know, I'm in the middle of a gay bar, right? You mm-hmm. know, um, there's something, too, about going on this journey or going on the search and then meeting other people at your destination that's really wonderful. And so, absolutely, there are places like that. And also, you know, lesbian sociability manifests in different ways. So I write about lesbian softball, for example, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, um, and other forms of, of socializing in the book that artists have represented, etc. That's why I'm writing a book now about karaoke, actually.
1: I was just Uh, about to to talk about that. (laughs) Uh, So you're working on two books, um, which there's one, Normal Television. I do want to talk about television. Critical Essays on Queer Spectatorship After the uh, quote-unquote new normalcy and Empty Orchestra, karaoke, karaoke, in our time, which critiques the, uh, wow, well, you, you're, you're just going to have to tell us what it critiques because it sounds really in-depth, far beyond my intelligence level. Well, yeah.
5: well the,
3: there's two parts to the karaoke project. One is just a sort of um, media archaeology, as I would call it, of the invention of the karaoke machine and its dissemination and circulation from Japan and the Philippines through into the U.S. and other places. So that's one dimension of it that's about the technology. But the other part of it actually thinks about how we use karaoke as a metaphor in our contemporary moment. Like, you know, if you watch reality TV and it's a bad performance or a really derivative one, Simon will say, that was karaoke, you know, right? Mm -hmm. Like karaoke is now a keyword for a bad copy. (laughs) And so what I've actually really kind of sprawl out thinking about in this book is the relationship between karaoke bad copies and how karaoke is used as a, a new aesthetic term or something that evaluates art and originality in our present time while thinking about karaoke as all you know as and bad copies in relation to kind of queer topics and the notion of the queer is a bad copy um, the queer subject is a bad copy etc so it really becomes an um, occasion to think about some of those old, worn-out topics, originality and imitation, uh, through a new technological lens related to sexuality and identity.
1: I'm going to have to take one of your classes, uh, if I ever... (laughs) can't get in, <laughs> Now that's so deep. Uh, now, let's uh, let's talk about something I'm really interested in, which is television, you know, and, uh-huh. and it's still interesting to this day when I describe to people that we have a local television show that is all, you know, queer-inclusive, LGBTQI, um, and it's still kind of one of the only ones, and, and I wonder, if, I mean, if there's even space for that, for just exclusive LGBTQI content.
3: Well, I mean, there's space, or all sorts of content at this point, you know, in the kind of televisual world. But um, you know, the, the the thing that I've been interested in is less about how much queer people want to see themselves on TV, but how much we love seeing really normy people on TV, <laughs> and what that does for, you know what kind of fantasies that activates in us, right? It's a little bit of a reversal of you know, you know, uh, straight people pruriently looking at queer lives and you know being anthropological about it, I think that one of the things I'm doing in the normal television book, which is a much shorter book of essays, is really about how our queer desire works itself out through what is the most generic, normiest sentimental white um, <laughs> kind of liberal programming on network t v
1: and you know let's talk a little bit about that and, and uh, new normalcy i mean um I feel like the the characters or the roles, the, the the faces that television when it comes to queer identity is uh, you know a, a, they're accommodating to would be a face that is less I want to say threatening is the word, and less threatening, meaning you know, like Anderson Cooper, Andy Cohen, they all don't look very gay um, mm-hmm. a, until you you know you you listen to them, you talk, you hear them talk about like content and whatnot. Uh, what, you know, and then and then I look at the emerging faces today, and someone like a Ruby Rose, for example, in Orange Is the New Black, who is Australian, uh, but tatted up, and who pretty much looks like the female version of like Justin Bieber. So I almost feel like media has this weird relationship, in where it might not even know what it wants from queer representation. Well,
3: absolutely. I mean, I think. Well, TV in general, right? Queer or not, um, it has a particular set of types. And you see those across the board, right? White, right? Yeah. Generally attractive, but in a kind of basic way, right? <laughs> um, TV, TV isn't very capacious. At least, you know, especially drama, isn't, isn't as capacious about, like, you know, who we get to see on screen. Um, but the... Other genres of television, and particularly, you know, something like reality TV, has really changed the dimension of what, you know, what the the body types that we see on TV, the range of people and classes we see on television, for better or worse, sometimes, you know, in really kind of terribly, you know, supposedly unscripted contexts, but really, you know, as kind of spectacles for for everybody else, right? So I do, you know, I think. Um I do think that re- there actually have been a range of other people who've like made appearances across the different forms of television across the different current platforms but for the most part you're only going to get one Mindy Kaling who gets to be, you know, the heroine uh-huh. of her own kind of rom you know, rom-com uh sitcom, right? Right. Uh not a lot of other not a lot of other people are going to get that kind of opportunity. Or you have something like Shondaland, right, you know, uh, across her shows, right, who creates these different, like, and differently-raced worlds. But it's not a lot of TV that still is willing to do that, uh, and you know. And we can see something like Fresh Off the Boat and see how that show has struggled or, you know, all these yeah. other shows, right?
1: Oh, man, I, I wish we had more time to talk about it Fresh Off the Boat. I need to talk to someone who understands it. But we ran out of time. Darn, we're going to have to have you back, Karen. Well,
3: it was a good time. I'm glad uh, we had a chance to chat today.
1: Yes, absolutely. Our thank City r- Friday, was it, or pre-Friday, or uh, what do you call it? Little Friday. It's Little, little Friday. Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, thank you so much for dropping by and for sharing your, your intelligence, deep thought, and knowledge with us. Thanks for letting me chat away. Karen Thompson, she's the Associate Professor of English and Gender Studies at the University of Southern California. If you get a chance, you can catch her book or buy it. Better yet, just buy it on Amazon.com, which is called Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue the show.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
1: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this little Friday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our next guest is the founder or co-director of Deliciously Disabled Consulting. He's got a new blog post out at the HuffingtonPost.com in which it's titled, Why I Want You to Stare at Me as a Man with Disabilities. I'm going to read just a little bit um, from his blog post because I think it sets up the, uh, the rest of the conversation for us. But here we go. I know why we all do this. We have been taught from before we can even remember that to stare is extremely rude and that we should never do it to anyone. When it comes to people with disabilities, though, this has been taken to the extreme. I have seen people pull their friends away, literally jumping out of my way, like I have some sort of explosive strap to me. Let's welcome Andrew Morrison-Gerza. Andrew, welcome to the program.
7: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: Yes, we're uh we're I'm very 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 thrilled to be having you on the program. I mean, one, personally, I've struggled with the stare all my life. Uh, my brother, my old, older brother, who's just a few years older than me, uh is disabled and he sits in a wheelchair and so I never understood why people were so afraid of a wheelchair. Um it's an innocent <laughs> Piece of you know equipment, um, but let's talk about your blog post. And that you know, I think your story is extra special because you yourself identify as queer. Yes, a, I
7: identify actually as a disabled queer cripple.
1: And in the in the post, you talk specifically about how you know within our own community you receive those stares. But as offensive as those stares are, you want them to stare at you.
7: Why? I really don't think that it's offensive. I think it's more offensive to not look at me, to, to not notice me. Like I say in the piece, I think that by not looking at me, you are removing me from your experience, and you're not being, you're not giving yourself the chance to drink, you know, the disability in and really take stock of it and figure it out. I want people to look at the disability and really take the time to re- to see how it fits and to question it and to have all the thoughts you might have around disability. And so. By looking at somebody with a disability and really looking at them, that's kind of how you that that happens. I think
1: that maybe it, it could break people's uh, mold of what a queer person's supposed to look like. Or I guess we you know we have that standard look. I like what you said in the piece in which you say that you know for that split second interaction uh, that I get to watch you really look at what a queer man who doesn't conform to any standard actually looks like.
7: Yeah. And I mean I don't I, I sit in a wheelchair, I have super palsy, I I don't can't walk at all. I you know, I don't fit what a queer man is supposed to look like. And I'm very, very proud of that fact. And so I, I want people to notice me and to be to have their ideology of what queer is interrupted and so I really I use that to my advantage.
1: Have you ever, you know, taken a step further and uh, noticed someone gazing at you and, and maybe perhaps not calling them out, but actually interacting and, and having a conversation to to break, you know, maybe either them being uncomfortable or, or or them having whatever judgment it is?
7: Yeah, I very, I have had that happen. So I'll, if somebody's looking there, I'll, I'll make a point of being like, hi, how are you, or going up and. And or giving them, you know, oftentimes in clear spaces, they have in really subtly quick ways. So if I notice somebody looking at me, I'll give a quick nod and a smile, and I'll just wait and see what happens and see if they approach and give them the chance to feel comfortable. But, I mean, if the, guy, if the person likes me or I find them attractive and I want to uh, pursue, then I'll definitely be like, hi, how are you? They're talking, and I, I do my best to make it. As comfortable for them as I can, because i I do understand that there's a lot of stigma around you know interacting with people with disabilities and sexual spaces, and I know that people are uncomfortable, so I try to do it in a way that is makes them comfortable but also calls them out in the nicest way, mhm.
1: Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Andrew Morrison gurza who's the founder co-director of Deliciously Disabled Consulting. Andrew, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your consulting business, Deliciously Disabled. <laughs> did you come up with the name?
7: I did, yes.
1: Talk to us I, about uh, yeah, what you uh, what kind of consulting you do.
7: I do a lot of work in the queer community. Um, I give talks and lectures on just the lived experience of what it means be a person living with a disability every day. because I think so often when we talk about disability, it's very safely couched in academia or the medical community. We're not really having conversations in everyday culture around what it means to actually, every day on the ground, live with a disability. And so the work that I do really tries to make disability accessible to all communities. Um, for myself as a queer man, I really started in the community being like where am I why am I not being represented why don't I see myself and so when I realized that I had no, uh, real, no real representation in our culture I was like well, I'm going to start to bring put it upon myself to, to have a conversation and then when Deliciously the came about about a, almost a year ago I realized that I had a brand that I could invite people into to have these conversations and so it's, Deliciously the Sale just an an umbrella brand to really look at disability in a different way.
1: And, you know, obviously you're not alone in terms of uh, the queer disability community. Um, So you're out there helping a lot of people.
7: Yeah, I mean, there's so, so so many of us. The more more that I do this work, the more I find out that there are queer people with disabilities all over the place, clamoring for representation. And so one of the things that I want to do with disability disabled is to be that representation that I was looking for when I was fifteen. I want to be somebody for the next generation of queer people with disabilities to say, Well look, there was somebody like me doing it. So I really made it my mission to ensure that everybody gets to be part of that conversation as well. And it isn't just for people with disabilities. I want to I want people without disabilities to feel like Disability is, is a part of their discussion as well, and they are allowed to be a part of it. I feel so, many, so often that people don't feel like they have permission to be a part of this conversation because they're not disabled and it isn't their experience and all those things. And mm-hmm. I keep saying, well, it could be your experience. You could run into the sexiest person with a disability on the street, and then you're going to have to know how to navigate it, so let's give you the tools to do that. Mm-hmm.
1: You talk a little bit about you know people falling or... Uh, over you, especially at the bars, the clubs, you know, they, they don't see you. That actually is more offensive to you than them looking at you and seeing you in your entirety. I, I wanted to yeah. ask, you know, your thoughts. And in, in when we talk about disability, you know, we don't oftentimes talk about access. And, and so a lot, I don't feel that a lot of queer bars provide access to disabled people to come and enjoy as well. What are your thoughts?
7: I don't think they provide access, but I don't think it's, I really don't think it's uh, deliberate, like, I'm going to make this inaccessible for Mm. disabilities. It's just something that I think the queer community as a whole, they don't have a framework to discuss disability and sexuality. We don't see it in our public culture. We're starting to see more representations of otherness within queerness right now, but disability is still the one that's kind of, you know, that isn't really being represented. So until we start seeing, you know, good-looking people with disabilities alongside your typical queer representation, then things will start to change. And I think then, then people will say, yeah, I want that hot-looking guy in a chair to mm-hmm. come in. They need, they need a framework to start discussing disability, and I think that's why, that's why there's been a lack of access, because it hasn't really hit home for them. And when, it, when they start seeing that queer people with disabilities will bring in the revenue these, uh, these establishments might change, but they need something that's sexy and accessible to make them do that.
1: Last question for you, Andrew, and thanks again for joining us and uh, sharing your thoughts and your input. Um, you know, if we could make it a better place for all of us to enjoy and, and be ourselves in the queer community, for those who are listening who may, who may not have thought about it, you know, to, to extend and accept the dis- disabilities community, what, what would you like to say to, to those
7: I would, I would like to say, well, it's okay that you haven't thought about it because, you know, there's a lot of things that, that I haven't thought about either that, that I didn't think, that I haven't thought about. But I think that it's time that we start looking at it um, in a different way. And I, I want to say that it's okay that it, disability scares you. It should, but if you, especially if you've never thought about it. And I want to I wanna invite you into those conversations and say that disability can be sexy, and, and I want to help make disability accessible for all those people. So if you want to learn more about what I do, I'd love to talk with
1: you. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Thank you. To follow Andrew and his work, head to Twitter and follow Deliciously Drew, of course. (laughs) Don't go away. When we come back, we'll wrap up the show.
4: Bye.
0: olson and david boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage jason collins talked about gay athletes the sisters of perpetual indulgence discussed activism and good works actor and director rob reiner explained how he got hollywood behind same-sex marriage barney frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of washington Commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face to face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
1: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this little Friday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and Fong, our producer, is in studio. Fong, I think that that was a, a really great show. Brilliant job. Yeah, I loved um, the things that both um, Karen and
2: Andrew talked about. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. It is.
1: And um, I don't know. I, I thought of Ellen DeGeneres after this show. You know, I like I like what she says, be kind to one another. Right, mm-hmm. isn't that what what she says? And I just think we need to be <laughs> much more understanding, accepting, and definitely much more kind to one another. Yeah. Um. So this weekend, you know, what I like to do, I used to, what we used to do here on the program on, on Little Friday to end the show is we would play, you know, the ultimate lesbian playlist, and, and talk about you know songs that <laughs> that that would end up on. <laughs> you know a lesbian playlist and so um speaking of you know music I, I i don't know if you might have some favorites like 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 mine i mean i i let let's just go back to like the club days <laughs> what kind of what kind of songs make you groove
2: um as of now one of my favorite is um one song by The Weeknd, I believe it's called Can't, can't Feel My Face. Yes, yes.
1: Um, have you seen the little clip there with uh Jimmy Fallon and uh, Ariana Grande? And mm-hmm. then she does so, they do that game where um, you know, it's like whoever it lands on, they have to pretend like they're that singer and then it pick a song and then they have to sing as if they are that singer. So she mocked Britney Spears with Mary Had a Little Lamb. Oh, my gosh. We should probably find that clip and uh, play it if we can. Um, I'm pretty sure it's out there. But it was hilarious. So one of the songs she did was uh, she did, I think she did Celine Dion
2: with Can't Feel My
1: Face. And it it was funny. (laughs) She was
2: like, "Uh, can't feel my face.
1: (laughs) Uh, What else? What other songs do you like? <laughs> um,
2: I don't know. Like I've been listening to a lot of radio songs, but then sometimes I don't really get the the, the titles of it. But I think one that I also um, am listening to right now, like Stitches, it's pretty nice.
1: Stitches, I don't know that song. Yeah, must be for young people. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Wait, is it for young people? Um, it's pretty new, I believe. Uh, I, I think anyone who listens to uh, radio will probably listen to it so
1: i don't think there's like an age Ah, uh, um what about what about do you listen to justin bieber at all oh my gosh no no why <laughs> i'm just not a fan is it because of his looks or his bad behavior or you're just not a fan of his music period i think all of the, all of them
2: <laughs> all of
1: them wow well you know when he came out, out into the scene i feel like lesbians embraced him cuz they like cuz he looked like he looks like a lesbian, <laughs>
2: um not me, <laughs> not you,
1: not you, not your thing no, no, um i don't you know, I don't like his music, I don't like his music either and and I think that his legions of you know believers are gonna come after me now i'm, I'm <laughs> that'd be believers. good, then I can get more Twitter followers, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they're crazy, I don't know why they like him so much. his music sucks. Yeah, I agree. Like his most recent song, um, what is it? Like, Where Are You Now? That's yeah. all he keeps saying. Where are you now? Where are you now? And it's just a bunch of the, you know, um, these these kids these days, they call themselves musicians, but they're just using the dance tracks underneath their voice, so they're not actually really singing. Oh. You know? Um, I just sent you the YouTube video of Ariana Grande and Jimmy Fallon in the what is it? The wheel of the wheel of musical impressions. So you're gonna have to watch it. I think we should play it. It's about six minutes long. Um, which, you know, we can end the show with. Sounds great. But it's hilarious.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: So uh any other music that you'll be listening to this weekend? Um Do you listen to Ariana Grande?
2: Yeah, yeah. Some music, I love them, but then at the same time they're so problematic. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't, I just can't.
1: <laughs> yeah, Ari Ariana Grande bothers me. I just, I mean, I I think she has a great voice, but um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I did, I think they sing about the same things over and over. And then, I mean, it's not like it's their lyrics, though, right?
2: Yeah, I guess so. Um, but then they're catchy. That's the that's <sighs> the issue. They're catchy. Dang it. <laughs>
1: They got, they, they, yeah, she was probably the fortunate ones with the voice and the looks. And there you have it. She's the package. (laughs) Well, let's, let's take a listen to this really funny clip with Ariana Grande and Jimmy Fallon. Um, Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And we have more explosive great shows for you. Big interviews next week, especially Tuesday with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Uh, Tomorrow, you'll hear from John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club and his week-to-week political talk. Don't forget that on Sunday, it's everything with B.B. Sweetbriar, in which she covers music, politics, topics, arts, entertainment. She's just an extraordinary drag queen. And all of the above. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.
5: All right, Ariana, uh, please oh, go, I first. go first. Yeah, oh, sure. Right. Press the magic button. <laughs>
6: <laughs> so, all right, so Britney Spears, who we all know, okay. and Mary Had a Little Lamb. All right. Which is pretty good. So, Ruth, can you give her a little music here for Britney Spears?
5: i we I am. now
6: it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> cheerleader. Uh I know uh, Aaron Neville oh oh yeah, Omi, oh okay, yeah. Aaron Neville doing cheerleader by Omi, okay. okay. Oh,
5: oh
3: that i mass a chili
5: she's
0: Oh, like that, oh, happy, 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 happy,
5: happy,
0: happy,
6: I love that time, Tina. Okay, good. All right, Ariana, you're up.
5: You're up. You're up. All right. Seven,
6: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Christina Aguilera doing The Wheels on the Bus. Christina Aguilera doing The Wheels on the Bus. Ruth. <laughs>
5: so good. That's perfect.
6: It's a okay. devil. It's a devil. Can't oh. feel my face.
5: It's a can't feel, a my, can't face feel my face off. Uh, uh,
6: <laughs> roots, do it. So don't do the same thing. You got to do a higher key. Because.
5: would take it
6: up. Celine would want it. Yeah. She would
2: modulate. Nah. Is that right? Nah.